All right, guys. Hey, we're going to transition to our time in God's Word together. Find your seats. If you brought a Bible, grab your Bible. Uh, my name's Pastor Matt. I'm filling in for Pastor Scott, our lead pastor here at Grace Church. He's away. And Scott asked me to continue what I started maybe four weeks ago on the topic of discipleship. And so if you were here with us four weeks ago for that, I titled the message, Don't Waste Your Life. And we looked at two things. We looked at the mandate for the church to be making disciples first. And that was from Matthew chapter 28. Now you may recall there's three aspects to our disciple-making mission as the church. First, we need to be intentional. Second, we need to be evangelistic. And third, we need to be discipling or teaching. This is our great commission, right? And then second, we looked at that aspect where, hey, this is not an empty command. It's not like a parent who tells a child to do something and the kid figures out pretty quick that there's no consequences. No, there's actually going to be an evaluation for us one day as believers. And that was 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so today what I want to do is I want to turn the corner And I want to ask the question together with our time in the Word, how do we do this? How do we go about this disciple-making mission? And specifically, I want to ask and look at, how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus do this? What I want us to take away from this morning, I can put in a statement, and it's this. It's that God uses ordinary people for His extraordinary mission by developing people from convert to disciple to laborer, to leader within the context of the local church. That's what I want to prove to you this morning. So let's pray together and we'll jump into God's word. Father in heaven, thank you that you are here with us. Thank you that you've enabled us to sing great praises to you this morning. Thank you that we can come now to your word to not only learn, but to grow and change and be different. I pray that you would give us focus here for the next uh, half hour to 40 minutes that we would be able to glean from this time and that we would walk away more like Jesus than we are right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across an interesting letter that I think is fitting for this occasion. It says, Dear Jesus of Nazareth, thank you for submitting resumes of the men that you have picked for management positions in your new organization called The Church. All of them have taken our battery of tests as well as having had personal interviews. Each man's information has been uploaded into our computers for personality competency profiles. Thus, we've provided all this information to our psychologists and aptitude consultants. It is our staff's opinion that most of your staff are lacking in background, vocation, education, and aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable. He's given to fits of temper. Andrew has no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, place their personal interests above company loyalties. Thomas presents a negative questioning attitude and he tends to undermine morale. We feel it's our duty to advise you that Matthew's been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and particularly Simon the Zealot, have radical leanings and have both registered on a high score on the manic depressive scale. Thaddeus is definitely sensitive, but he just wants to please and make everyone happy. One of your candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind and maintains contact in high places. He's motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your comptroller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture, the church, Sincerely, the 12 consultant firm. Now, what's funny about this is that it's accurate, isn't it? 
This is an accurate description of the 12 disciples of Jesus from a worldly standpoint. These guys were not special. If you were building an organization, these would not be your first round draft picks. And yet, using 12 ordinary men, the Lord Jesus turned the world upside down. What I want to consider with you this morning then is that God is in the business of using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He's using ordinary men and women to accomplish his extraordinary mission. People like Peter and Matthew and James and John, but also people like you and like me. From the time of Adam forward, consider this, God has no qualified individuals left. Not one of us is qualified and ready and, uh, and qualified to be used. He just has us regular, ordinary people to use. And so I want to convince you today that you are useful in God's kingdom building purposes and also that you are needed. You are valuable and needed for God's mission in the church. Right, and this is important because some of you uh, have struggles with this. Some of you think maybe you have nothing to offer. Others have maybe done things in the past, but now have moved on and have kind of set the cruise control. Right, still others think they're too young in the faith. As stated before though, God is using imperfect people in process to accomplish his purposes. Each of us is in process and yet each of us is helping others in process as well. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. What I want to do this morning is walk you through Jesus' disciple-making model. Jesus' four-stage disciple-making model. I've been helped by many books on this, some of which were written by Bill Hull, if you're interested for more reading. Uh, I want to take you through, though, how Jesus did this as a model for how we are to be on mission toward one another and toward the world. So turn over to John chapter 1. And as we get to John chapter 1, it's the Apostle John writing, and he's writing about John the Baptist. So don't get confused about the two Johns. John the Apostle writing about John the Baptist. And in John chapter 1, verse 35, it says, The next day again John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, who John is saying this to is his own disciples. He's announcing the arrival of the Messiah, and it's at this point where John the Baptist's ministry is going to begin to shrink. And we'd find out later that he was glad that it was because it's Jesus who people were going to be following. Essentially, John's nudging his guys and saying, hey guys, you know that guy that I've been preparing the way for? The Messiah, the one born in Bethlehem who would come to save us from our sins? That's him right there. He's right there. Go follow him. And so, verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They began following Jesus, and what Jesus is going to ask them is really a question for the ages. Right? Jesus was omniscient. He knew all things. He did not need to ask the question that he's going to ask, but he's doing this to draw them out. He's going to draw out their heart, the deepest places of their inner longings. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Again, he knows these men have just come from John the Baptist. And bear in mind, Jesus knew John the Baptist's ministry from his first week in the womb. <laughs> he knew who John the Baptist was going to be even before he was born. He knows very well that John is preparing the way. People are repenting. The high place is being brought low and the valleys being brought high. There's a leveling out of people's hearts prepared for Messiah. And so Jesus has 
keen awareness of where their hearts are, and he's going after it. He's drawing out their inner desire. He's saying, what are you longing for? What is the driving factor of your heart? Their response, verse 38, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, just so we're not confused here, this is not a question as to whether or not Jesus had a nice pad. (laughs) This is not about his actual house. We know Jesus would say later, foxes have dens, birds have nests in the air, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Instead, I believe these guys are asking Jesus, hey Jesus, do you have a little more time? Can we come over for lunch? Where's your place? Can we follow you there and spend several hours discussing this question? Jesus then is going to spend the rest of the day with them. Verse 39, he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. They spend the rest of the day with Jesus. And as Jesus invites them to come and you will see, again, I'm not persuaded as I've studied this that he's talking about the physical location of his home. I think he's actually referring to their first question. Or the first question that he asked them, which is, what are you seeking? He's wanting to spend time with them to show them what they ought to be seeking. And so we have this first invitation to come and see. To come and see. Within Jesus' disciple-making model, he begins with an invitation. And this is the phase of becoming a convert. It's the phase of becoming a convert within our process of following Jesus more more and more. For us, if we transition, what does our disciple-making process look like? This is inviting people to come and see Jesus, right? Within this very passage, Andrew, upon hearing about the Messiah, what does he do? Just a few verses later, he runs home. He grabs Peter by the hand and says, come and see, I have found the Messiah. In the same way then, church, we are called to invite people to come and see what this Lamb of God is all about. This might occur through individual talks with them as we say, hey, where do you stand with Jesus? Do you have any spiritual background? Did you grow up going to church? We begin the conversation with hopes of introducing them to the king. Or it may happen through some sort of public event. Maybe you just say, hey, why don't you come check out church with me? Right? Or maybe, gosh, if only we had some sort of men's barbecue event coming up or some sort of men's ministry where we could... Oh wait, men, we do. A great opportunity to invite friends to come and meet the king. And women in the same way, if only this church was offering some sort of women's fellowship gathering on Saturday, September 5th, followed by a series of studies offered in three different formats for your convenience. Oh yes, we do. Ladies, what I want to tell you is this is a great opportunity to invite people to come and meet the king. (laughs) To come and meet Lord Jesus. This is all we're doing here, right? The first phase of this kind of intimidating disciple-making process that the Lord Jesus did is he invited people to come and see who he was and to experience life in him. John chapter 10, verse 10. I've come that you may have life and that you may have life abundantly. So that's what we do. (laughs) The first phase of disciple-making is just bringing people to meet Jesus. And I just want to encourage you, GCV, you can do this. You can do this. Remember, God is in the business of using ordinary men and women to accomplish his extraordinary mission, and it begins by an invitation. This doesn't require a seminary degree. In fact, if you think about Andrew, 
Andrew was just a fisherman, and all he did was go and tell Peter, Peter, I found the Messiah, come with me. They went and met Jesus, and then we hardly hear anything about Andrew in the rest of the gospel records. But who do we hear a lot about? Peter. So Andrew's role was vital in the foundation of the church because he brought Peter to Jesus, and then Peter would be the leader who would preach to thousands on the day of Pentecost. Who's in your life? Who's in your life right now who needs an invitation to come and meet Jesus? Who can you begin to influence and invite them to come and see? This is the first phase of the disciple-making process displayed by our Lord Jesus. Now, for the second phase, turn back to Mark's gospel, Matthew, Mark, the second gospel of our New Testament. The second phase of Jesus' disciple-making process is that He's going to move his men from being converts now to labor, or now to disciples. And he does that through the process of inviting them to come and follow. Look at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. It says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Again, this is the phase of moving now from convert to disciple, which in the Greek means follower. Notice, uh, this is not the first time that these men have met Jesus. In fact, if you do a chronology of the Gospels, there's actually been four months that have passed from their initial encounter with Jesus. Four months have gone by from when Jesus first said, come and see, and now he calls them to come and follow. So this was not their first encounter, and apparently after their first uh, initial conversation with Jesus that afternoon, they went back to their fishing nets. They went back to their full-time careers as fishermen, and yet through this time, Jesus has not forgotten about them. (laughs) It's not as though they've been out of sight, out of mind. No, there's something more intentional happening here. Namely, Jesus is giving them time. Friends, write this down. Jesus gave people time to commit to following him. Jesus gave ample time to consider the weight of a commitment to Christ. This is not a sales pitch. This is not a a smooth move to try to get people to sign up for your new club, right? Unlike the cults, so many cults today operate this way. They do everything they can to peer pressure and to create fear and incentive to get maybe baptized or some sort of commitment in hopes that later they'll come to a realization of what they're actually doing. This is not how the Lord Jesus operates, though. And nor is it how we should operate. Jesus gave time. Now, this is not the only way to share the gospel, but this is one of the reasons why I'm a huge fan of sharing the gospel over a period of several weeks, right? And so I've put together this gospel packet that's not the silver bullet, but it's a way of sharing the gospel with people and letting them come to the conviction on their own that the gospel really is true and that Jesus really is both King or Lord and Savior. And so again, this fall I'm going to be taking the men through that. Would love men for you to be there just as one way of sharing the gospel and giving time to come to this understanding. Jesus gave time, but now eventually he's going to come to a place within four months of time where he's going to challenge them, hey, you're either in or you're out. You either need to fish or cut bait, and I'm challenging you to commit to me. This makes a little bit more sense. If you're like me, when I first read this, it says in verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. I'm like, man, is this this guy's first time meeting Jesus? Their first time, and all of a sudden they're leaving their home, their family, and their business? Well, no, it's not their first time. They've had time to think about 
the fact that Jesus really is who he said he was. However, though he gave time, Jesus set the bar high. In Luke 9, 23, we know that he says, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Right? Jesus' cost of following him is high, and yet he's calling them to do this. So, again, think about the disciple-making process. He's moving them from convert now to disciple, a grounded, committed follower of Jesus. In the same way, Grace Church, this is our process as well. Right? Jesus is calling them to a vision. He's calling them to a mission. And in the same way, we are to call men and women to the vision of not only following Jesus, but becoming fishers of men. Oh, that we would do the same. Can you imagine if our whole church was committed to growing in this process of becoming a fisher of men, to becoming a grounded disciple of Jesus who can then go teach others also? Think about this fact. Twelve men... Twelve men caught the vision, and they turned the world upside down. What could an entire church do? What could we do? And so, I just want to ask, maybe you've invited someone to church. Maybe you've began the conversation. Maybe they've come to a faith in Jesus. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. What's your game plan now? What's next? What do you do if God puts in your lap a coworker or a friend of your child or grandchild Someone who needs to be discipled. What will you do? Well, I think simply we do what Jesus did. And Jesus just did two things. Two things. He showed them how to do it, and then he did it with them. Guys, so much of our discipleship, it, let me quote Mark Dever, so much of our discipleship is doing what you ordinarily do, but bringing people along with you and having meaningful conversations like Jesus did. It's just doing what you're normally doing, but redeeming that time for discipleship. When I was a freshman, I came to faith in Christ uh, through the weight room conversation that led to a Bible study that led to now a discipling relationship. And my discipler would take me grocery shopping with him. He'd take me back home to his ranch. He would take me to run errands and to go visit someone in the hospital. And we'd talk along the way and then we'd do life and then we'd talk some more. It's, it's really not that complicated. We just take people along and we redeem it for that purpose. I can think about as a kid, I was blessed with a father and a stepfather and a great father-in-law, and I've learned a lot from all three of these men. But the majority of what I've learned from them has not been from them instructing me A, B, C, right? And think about how did you learn as a child? How do you learn? You learn by doing it with them. So again, I want to commission us as part of this disciple-making process, as part of bringing people from convert to a grounded disciple, we need to bring people along with us in teaching them how to follow Jesus. Now, last thing to say here, R.C. Sproul wrote a book, Five Things Every Christian Needs to Grow. Here's just a few tools in your tool belt. Five things to implement into a young disciple's life. Number one is the Word of God. Show them how you read the Bible. Show them how to have a quiet time. I'm amazed at how many Christians have been in the faith two, three, four years and have never learned how to have a quiet time. Well, maybe we need to teach them. So number one is the Word. Number two is prayer. One of my most uh, favorite memories was a college student back in Bozeman, and we were on a trail run. And as we're running, he says, hey, Matt, he's been a Christian two years. He says, hey, Matt, how do you pray? He said, I'm just kind of struggling. I actually don't know how to pray. And so we're running up this mountain. I'm out of breath trying to explain to him the Acts model or how to just pray through Scripture. So secondly, guys, we need to teach people how to pray. 
Thirdly, we need to teach people how to worship, that they need individual, private worship in life and also corporate worship with the body. We worship together as a family, and then we go out and we worship in the workplace and in homes and with friends. Number four, we need to teach people that they need to serve. God's given them gifts to serve. You are made to serve the living King, both in the church and out in the world. And then number five, teach them the principle of stewardship. Everything you've been given is to be stewarded for the kingdom of God. Your energy, your youth if you have it, your wisdom if you're older, your time, your money, your resources, everything you have, your intellect is to be stewarded for God's kingdom building purposes. And what's nice is, hey, listen, you might not be able to teach a disciple all this, but that's where the local church comes in, right? That's where I can bring someone to someone like Greg or someone else and say, hey, spend some time with them. They're going to teach you things about walking with Jesus. Discipleship needs to be done within the context of the church because not a one of us has every gift that is manifested in this corporate setting here. And so, all that to say, we're moving people from convert to disciple. We're teaching them how to follow Jesus better. We need the local church to do that well. And in this way, we are following Jesus' own disciple-making process. Now, as we enter to the third phase, moving to the third phase of Jesus' disciple-making process, go over to Mark chapter 3. Jesus, he's just so masterful, isn't he? I just love studying how he did things because he was perfect. He did it the best possible way. And so when we think about making disciples, why not look at his method of doing it? And again, we're going to see Jesus invite people to come and see. We're going to invite them to come. He's going to invite them to come and follow. And now the third phase is he's going to invite them to come and be with me, which is the phase of laboring. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those who, whom he desired, and they came to him. Verse 14. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. Here we go. So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. That they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. This is Jesus' invitation to come and be with me. Now notice, he's, get, he's beginning to get more selective. And if you do your chronology study, Jesus has prayed for the entire night, and so he's not inviting everyone. But these are those who have already shown to be faithful as converts. They've already been shown to be grounded as disciples. And now he's going to move them to the third phase of the disciple-making process, which is to become laborers. These were those whom were faithful, whom he prayed for all night, and now he selects them and brings them to his inner circle. What is it that he's going to teach them? Well, he's going to begin to teach them through the process of being with him to go out and to preach. Remember, he had invited them. He said, I'm going to show you how to become fishers of men. Well, now it's time to actually begin fishing for men. It's time to entrust to them the work of the ministry. This phase then of come and be with me, of becoming a laborer in the kingdom of God will last for 20 months. And we know Jesus only had a three-year ministry. So almost two-thirds of his ministry is spent developing these 12 as laborers in the kingdom of God. This is where Jesus is going to cut them loose and say, go, and I'm not coming with you. <laughs> Luke chapter 10 is one example where he does this. He sends out the 70. He gives them authority. He tells them what to do, and he sends them out, and they go from town to town. And you remember Luke 10, and then they come back, and Jesus has to have a little heart-to-heart -heart and calm them down a bit. But the key in Luke 10 is this. He didn't go with them. 
He didn't go with them. He entrusted them and he sent them to go. Here is where he trains these men how to be laborers and eventually leaders. What does this mean for you and I? Well, Grace Church, this means we should be growing not only in our own commitment to Christ, not only in our own sanctification, but we should be growing as laborers in the kingdom of God. God expects each one of us to be doing things ministerially, to be involved in the mission of the church here among one another and also out there among the world. We ought to be growing in the process of becoming a more effective laborer for God's kingdom. And here we go. At the same time, we ought to be growing in helping others to become laborers as well. God is on the hunt for laborers. Matthew chapter 9. What's the problem in Matthew chapter 9? Did Jesus say the harvest is few? The harvest is weak? No, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. God is looking for laborers. Rare is the man and rare is the woman who says, here I am, Lord, use me. Use me. When, when a man makes himself available for God's divine purposes, though, God will surely use every ounce of what he's been given for God's own glory and purposes. And so now as we move from the phase of being a laborer to the final phase of leadership, leadership, I want to point out this is not like some college test that you'll take where the, the first exam is just the first half of the semester and then the second exam is just the second half of the semester. No, no, no. This is more like the bar exam. This is more like the MCAT. You've got to know it all. As we move from a disciple to a laborer and a leader, you don't leave the phase of being a convert behind. You don't leave the phase of being a disciple behind. Hopefully we're still converts and hopefully we're still disciples as we begin to serve other people in this mission. This is a very much so a cumulative process, and yet Jesus' model is now he's going to move his disciples toward being a leader. The fourth and final phase of Jesus' disciple-making process is to move people toward leadership. To see that, look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And this is where Jesus says, remain in me and reproduce. John chapter 15, verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This final phase of disciple making then for Jesus is meant to produce leaders. This is the last week of Jesus' time with his men. It's the last night with them actually. He knows he's leaving and he's telling them, guys, if this is going to work, it's going to be up to you. You've got to take the baton and run with it. The Spirit will be with you. I'm not going to leave you without help. The Spirit will be here, but I'm not going to be here, and you've got to be leaders. Now, notice a couple things here. First, Jesus doesn't tell them to just gut this out on their own. He actually tells them, remain in me. Even though I'm going to leave, you must remain in me. Thus, we learn spiritual leadership, even for us today, necessarily draws its strength through intimate connection to Christ. Guys, the moment you get out of step with Christ, the moment you break fellowship with Jesus and try to do ministry in the flesh is the moment we're going to go down. Jesus' commands to his guys is, guys, you've got to remain in me. But through remaining in me, look at this incredible promise. He says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So yes, we don't do it alone, but notice this is an expectation. 
Fruit in our lives is an expectation and a proof of true discipleship with Jesus, true following of Christ. Jesus here then encourages them to remain in me and to reproduce. Again, it's an amazing promise to consider that God promises that there will be fruit. If we as a body of Christ remain in Christ, Jesus is promising that much spiritual fruit will come from this commitment. I think we're, if we look at church history, we can see hundreds of movements of the Spirit of God. And really, I think if we even look right here, we are sitting on something that has come from God. We're not a perfect church, but this is a movement of God's Spirit like he promised to abide in me, and in so doing, you will bear fruit. And guys, I'm convinced this is just the beginning. This is a 12, 13-year-old church. This is just the beginning. There is still more fruit to be seen. What does this look like in our lives? What does this look like for us? This is to be uh, true in our ministries as well. Well, there's a sense in which we have the responsibility to one another to prepare one another to be leaders. We are helping one another to grow as disciples. We're helping one another to grow as laborers, but we are all responsible to be leaders as well. We should have an awareness of, of the body. We should be thinking about, oh man, Who's gifted in this area that could help me in my weakness? You know, I know someone. I think you'd be really great meeting with that person. Oh, wow, this person's such a servant. You, sh- you, you, you ought to consider serving in this ministry. We should ask people, how can I encourage you in your giftings? How can I help you succeed? This is, I believe, where we move now from being just a laborer to an actual leader in the kingdom of God. As we grow in Christ, we should not only be laboring, but we should be looking around and thinking about others in the body who are functioning in this disciple-making process as well. That's spiritual leadership in the church. That is the biblical disciple-making model. It doesn't occur solo, but it occurs with one another. Well, maybe at the end here, we could ask the question, what what do I do now? What do we do with this? How how do I think about this convert to disciple to laborer to leader model? And I just want to point out that there's a ditch on either side of the road here. Some are going to take this and run with it, and they're going to be a magnanimous personality. They're going to have seemingly all the gifts in the world. They're going to go start a ministry, make disciples. People are going to get saved. Leaders are going to be birthed. Organizations started. And that's, there's some good there. But the detriment is they're doing it on their own. right? God intended it to be done in the context of the local church with biblical eldership, with a multi-generational body, with the serving of the elements, with corporate worship, right? All these these facets of the local church, God intends this disciple-making process to be done within the local church, not on our own. The ditch on the other side is that some are going to be intimidated. Some are going to say, well, Matt, I can't do this on my own. I don't know how to bring someone into the phase of convert and then how to disciple them to being a disciple and, and then a laborer and a leader And friends, that's the beauty of the local church is that you can get involved in the game. You can get off the sideline and actually be engaged in this disciple-making process and link arms with your teammates, which is the church. That's another reason why God has intended this to occur within the context of the local church. In fact, interesting antidote, after the book of Acts, the word disciple basically vanishes from the scene. The word disciple, the idea of disciple-making, is silent in the New Testament epistles. And I think one reason for this is that God intends 
for the disciple-making process to occur in the context of one anothering. So the one anothering is part of this disciple-making process. We're encouraging one another, exhorting one another, rebuking one another, singing with one another, praying with one another. This is part of this process as well. And so if you're intimidated by this process, right? Some are self-willed, others are intimidated. If If that's you, take courage and link arms with your brothers and sisters. This is a team effort. This is a team effort that we're engaged in. Guys, I just want to share with you, God has done something in my heart and my life that it just nothing gets me lit up more than talking about the disciple-making process. I'm not perfect in it. I'm still in process. But for 10 years, it's been my passion, my joy to see people come from unbeliever to believer and from a brand new convert to a grounded disciple and then eventually into leadership within the church. And, and there's so many good things going on here at this church. My heart is just this. I just want to say, hey, excel still more. Excel still more, and if you're not in the game, if you're not involved in this effort, I want to encourage you to take that step of faith and begin engaging in the disciple-making process just like the Lord Jesus did.